the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back uh, as we head into Hour 3 and set you on your way home here. Um, usually we have Rabbi uh, Pinchas Solution this hour because of uh, the sun setting. We're now putting him seasonally just for a few months uh, in the second hour. So if you um, missed him and want to hear him, you can get that at 960thepatriot.com. 960thepatriot.com is where we post everything in case you missed anything, and you can get it there for free. Um, and it was a little bit of a different hour. We got interrupted uh, by a special phone call uh, from his son on the front lines in Gaza. So uh, it may, um, when you listen, if you if you hear a little <laughs> a little bit of a pause or a little bit of something that didn't sound perfectly produced, that's why. But I did reference in uh, the interstices of that conversation a speech by uh, one Constantine Kissin. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with his work. Uh, Constantine is K-O-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-N, and Kissin is K-I-S-I-N. He's a young uh, writer and uh, speaker. He's about 40 years old, and he has a book out. uh, It's a couple years old, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. He has a podcast called uh, Triggernometry, uh, which is a clever title, Triggernometry. You can see it on uh, YouTube and all your other podcast platforms. But he gave a speech uh, earlier this week uh, for uh, an organization of Jordan Peterson's uh, at something called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, uh, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship Forum. Um, It's a great set of words right there, responsible citizenship. Um, Anyway, (laughs) he gave a speech and— I heard, I heard it uh, through. Uh, I heard parts of it on another show and went back to see the whole thing, and I couldn't help but want to share it with you. So I think you will find it as meaningful as I did. This is Constantine Kissin uh, this week. One of I think um, you know. I get asked all the time um, from friends, and I even just got one from a friend on uh, Twix earlier today. Who's our next Ronald Reagan? Who's our next William Buckley? That sort of thing. And I have, um, I have perhaps some dissident views about that sort of stuff, um, which I'll weigh in on in a few minutes. But to the degree that we have a next great or someone who over the course of time will be seen as, um, as, as so remarkable that we'll be talking, them, talking about what they said and did after they passed, um, passed, passed, passed away, I think Constantine Kissin is someone to pay attention to. And I'll say more about all of that and that whole theory in a few minutes. But here he is uh, earlier this week. I can get my... Hello and thank you. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said that the strength or weakness of a society depends more on the level of its spiritual life than on its level of industrialization. If a nation's spiritual energies have been exhausted, he said, it will not be saved from collapse by the most perfect government structure or by any industrial development. 
a tree with a rotten core cannot stand. When he was allowed to leave the USSR, Solzhenitsyn went to the US, where he was given a hero's welcome. But he quickly realized that American society was far from perfect. He started lecturing Americans about the problems he saw. Americans don't like that. Like Solzhenitsyn, I come from the Soviet Union, but I have no intention of repeating his mistake. That's why I've come to Britain. <laughs> where you love being told what's wrong with you by foreigners. <laughs> but I do have to be honest. Six months ago when Jordan and Philippa asked me to come here and speak at ARC about the importance of audacity, adventure, and a positive vision for our civilization, I was honored and delighted. But as I stand here today, after watching crowds openly celebrate mass murder on the streets of our cities, after watching the police spend more time debating Islamic theology on Twitter than enforcing the law, I'm starting to lose faith. I don't know how long our civilization will survive. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. Now, look, I'm not going to be all doom and gloom. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. <laughs> but joking aside, I have to be honest, I've been in a dark place these last few weeks. So I did what I always do when I don't know what to do. I talked to my wife. It's not the only time I talk to her, but you don't get the point. <laughs> And she said, look, you just, you need, a, you need to clear your mind, take a few days off, let's go on holiday. And I know it's a weird thing to say, I don't like going on holiday. Because I love working and I hate spending money. <laughs> Protestant work ethic in a Jewish man's body. <laughs> My wife is exactly the other way around, unfortunately. <laughs> but she was right. She's always right. That's her best and most annoying quality. Um, so we went to Barcelona, beautiful city. And as we were walking down the main tourist street, La Rambla, many of you will know when you get to the bottom, you hit the Christopher Columbus monument. And it looks like a giant column with a pillar of Columbus on top pointing towards the new world. And this reminded me of my son, Nikolai. He's 16 months and this is what he does. He sits on my hip and points in the direction he wants to go. <laughs> Treats me like a horse, basically. And if I don't act quickly enough, or if I don't comply, he does what all toddlers do. He throws a tantrum and starts screaming, how dare you? You have stolen my dreams with your empty words. <laughs> and when he does, we read him a story and put him to bed. We don't give him a standing ovation in front of the UN. Anyway, trigger warning, I'm going to talk positively about Christopher Columbus. I know he committed some pretty sizable microaggressions, but he also changed the world. Do you know why he changed the world? Yeah, he tried to reach India and by accident discovered America, but why go west to India? Europeans had been trading with India and China for centuries via the Silk Road. Why risk your life to go out on a limb? There were many reasons, of course, 
Well, the main one was the decision to try and reach Asia by going west was not made out of choice. Europe was desperate. Only a few decades prior, in 1453, the Ottomans sacked Constantinople and they cut Europe off from the Silk Road. The West was facing a huge challenge and a new threat, no smaller than the one we face today. And like us, what they needed was another way. But when Columbus took his idea to go west to India to the kings and queens of medieval Europe, they laughed at him. They didn't laugh at him because he was some misunderstood genius. He wasn't Galileo. They laughed at him because he was wrong. If you go out in the street and ask a random person why Columbus discovered America, they'll tell you he worked out that the earth was round. Not true. By the time Columbus set off on his voyage in 1492, people had known the earth was round for two millennia. There's probably more flat earthers now than there were in the 15th century. God bless the internet. The reason Columbus discovered America is not that he'd worked out that the earth was round. The reason is that he massively underestimated the size of the planet. They were right to laugh at him. He was wrong. But he took that wrongness. He persuaded 90 other men to get into three boats smaller than the size of this stage and sail into the unknown. And he persuaded Queen Isabella of Castile and King Ferdinand of Aragon to fund his voyage. The moral of the story is, it doesn't matter how wrong you are, as long as you've got rich friends. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is, the history of our civilization was not made by people who always got everything right. It was made by people who'd made mistakes too. It was made by people who dared to believe that they could solve the problems they faced. The story of the West is a story of audacity. The big debates of the last decade, the culture war, the polarization, are about one thing and one thing only, the future. There are people like us in this room who believe that our future is to be prosperous, powerful, and influential. We are the majority. Let me hold it right there and get you to his conclusion, his peroration, if you will. When we come right back, we're listening to Konstantin Kissin. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. This speech by Konstantin Kissin is so important, and uh, I wanted to share it with you in his voice. My, first of all, any British voice is always going to sound smarter and better. Uh, so um, if you'll just permit me to uh, let him pick up where he left off. This is Constantine Kissin earlier this week speaking at a Jordan Peterson conference. But there are also some people whose brains have been broken by an excess of education, who believe that our history is evil, that we do not deserve to be great, we do not deserve to be powerful, that we must be punished for the sins of our ancestors. To them, our past is abominable, our present must be spent apologizing, and our future is managed decline. My message to those people is simple. How dare you? You will not steal my son's dreams with your empty words. But Jordan is right. We need a positive message too. So here it is. From the dawn of time, human beings have had to work to make the world a better place. We captured the mystery of fire. We invented the wheel. 
Today, we build buildings that would shock and awe almost every human being that has ever lived. We split the atom, we spliced the genome, and we connected the world through microcomputers that fit in our pockets, that allow us to do amazing things. This morning, I destroyed someone on Twitter with facts and logic from the toilet. It's magic. <laughs> Remember your grandparents? Remember them? If I could go back in time and transport the grandparents of your grandparents into this room just four generations ago, they would think they'd been abducted by aliens. That's the progress we've made. We haven't made that progress by whining and acting like victims. We've made that progress by unleashing the creativity and talents of people like us here in this room. But I do think we've forgotten what adventure is. Being adventurous is not ordering extra spicy chicken at Nando's. Wrong reference for this room. Uh, let me try again. Being adventurous is not ordering extra spicy chicken from your personal chef. When Columbus and his men got on those boats and took a journey into the unknown, they sailed to certain death. You know why? It's not because they were braver than you and I. It's because they knew something we've forgotten. All death is certain. And so I say to our friends in the world of business, you've made your fortunes by maximizing your returns on your investments. We are in the fight of our lives. There is no greater return on your investment than to protect and preserve our civilization. And so I invite you to follow in the footsteps of Elon Musk and Paul Marshall and Bandello and many of you here who are using your fortunes for the betterment of humanity. I say to our friends in the media, truth matters. We are in the fight of our lives. There is more to life than clicks and downloads. Let's move beyond the culture war where all we do is bat away the litany of slanderous allegations about our history. Let's set the agenda. Let's remind our fellow citizens why we are where we are. Let's remind them that we are the most tolerant, open, and welcoming societies in the history of the world. We're not embarrassed about our past. We're proud of it. And to my colleagues in new media especially, I say this. The legacy media is dying for a reason. They cannot be saved. They cannot be reformed. Let's stop complaining about them and start building the media empires of the future ourselves. We have everything we need. We've even got rich friends now. I say to our friends in education and academia, I understand that many of you feel like the French resistance or Soviet partisans, stuck behind enemy lines, undermanned and outgunned. And you're right, we are in the fight of our lives. So keep fighting for every young mind you can. It will be worth it. And finally, I say to our friends in politics, many of you here are conservatives. I'm not. I look terrible in tweed. That's why I identify as politically non-binary. Um, but I can tell you conservatives something. You will never get young people to want to conserve a society and an economy that is not working for them.
We will not overcome woke nihilism as long as young people are locked out of the housing market, unable to pair up, unable to have kids, unable to plan for the future. I know it's difficult, and I know that whoever solves the housing crisis may well pay the price at the ballot box. This is true of many pressing issues, too, or at least you think it is. But you did not get into politics to get re-elected. You got into politics to make a difference. We are in the fight of our lives. And if courage means anything, it means doing the right thing and being willing to take the punishment if you have to. Let me say it again. All death is certain. We do not get to choose whether we live or die. We only get to choose whether we live before we die. Thank you very much. Something tells me that that's going to be a refrain of some lasting note and measure, uh, especially in the times, the stressful times that we are all in and have been thrust in, forced in, foisted into, or have foisted upon us, perhaps, is the better way to put it, with the tremendous amount of fear that so many people have been thrust into living with, underperceived or not, and willing and comfortable, more comfortable living in fear, more willing to live in fear than non-fear. And it's very hard to convince someone who's living in fear not to. It's very hard to convince someone of that point of Constantine Kisson's that all death is certain. We do not get to choose whether we live or die. We get to choose if we live before we die. It takes me back to what I was saying in the previous hour uh, from C.S. Lewis in his speech about how to live with the atomic bomb. It's a very very close analog to what Constantine Kisson was saying. Pull ourselves together. Pull yourselves together, he told his students. If we are all going to be destroyed by a bomb or something else, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, and not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They they may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. It's interesting that Constantine used the phrase, the fight of our lives, so many times. And I want to say something about that when we come back. I wrote a book of that title. I co-authored a book on that title with William Bennett, The Fight of Our Lives. So I should like to say something about that when we come right back. Do you trust this economy? How about a secure investment that actually helps people? Why Refi has that? An investment where you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. You're in control. <clears throat> you can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. There are absolutely no fees. You can have peace of mind. There is no attack on principle if you ever need your money back. You'll get your monthly statement with no surprises, and it is a secure, collateralized portfolio that may be a better option for you than where you have your money now, check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call 888-YREFI-24. YREFI is based here locally, offices on Chauncey Lane in North Phoenix. You can visit with them. I've been there many times. And when you do, no sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign anything. 
My friends at Y-Refi, they're trustworthy and honest, and that's what you'll see if you do visit them or check them out. Just go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-24, 888-Y-REFI-24. Make sure and tell them Seth sent you. In that speech of Constantine Kissens, he goes into a lot of things. He uses the phrase fright of our lives perhaps more than any other phrase that he uses, and... Um, it struck me because I wrote – Bill Bennett and I wrote a book of that title uh, some few years back called The Fight of Our Lives. Um, and it was about our cultural condition in and what was at the time the height of our war against radical Islam in the mid-aughts. And um, you can still get it <laughs> if you want, Amazon or Barnes & Noble or whatever, The Fight of Our Lives. But it's really about our cultural condition, as I said, in our in our – and our and our psychological health and intellectual health with regard to the West, with regard to the kinds of things Constantine Kissin was talking about. And what's amazing to me is we were critiquing American society and American culture in that book for having become weak, for having become full of self-doubt, full of handering, uh, full of what Philip Reef called um, the triumph of the therapeutic, where we felt we needed to be coddled more than that we needed to stand up, uh, proclaim the righteousness of our cause and our country, and do something about it. And what's interesting to me about that, in context of what we're living through today and what we've been kind of bearing witness to since um, the second week of October— is we're at it again. We're doing it again. I remember um, about two and a half weeks ago, a friend of mine uh, who was working with Dr. Bennett and myself said, we're going to need another Americans for Victory over terrorism. We're going to need Americans for Victory over terrorism 2.0. That was a project we had started after 9-11. Charles Krauthammer, Bill Bennett, myself, and uh, Frank Gaffney was part of it. Um, I'll think of a few others. Jim Woolsey, former CIA director. We would go to college campuses and give talks on these things, on the importance of the West, like Constantine Kissin, except we would do it with this panel of these great minds, and we would take questions and answers from students, take questions from students, try and give them answers. The reason we did it back then was we didn't have any confidence whatsoever in the university. This was... This was uh, listen, this was 20 years ago. We thought the university was a lousy place then in understanding the difference and teaching the difference between right and wrong, teaching the difference between what is good and what is evil, and how sometimes, though we hadn't in a generation seen a serious or big war, sometimes war being an ugly thing is perhaps the most necessary of things when it's thrust upon you. We wrote in our book something in our epilogue I'll share with you that I think is unfortunately right in front of our faces and our noses again. And um, unless we get it right, Lincoln will be proven right. Lincoln will be proven right from his Lyceum address that he gave when he was only 28 years old in 18, 
38. At what point then is the approach of danger to be expected, he asked. I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. So I'll speak more to this when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We're building off of uh, and talking about Constantine Kissin's great speech uh, at uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, event uh, earlier in the week. You can, uh, if you missed it, hear it uh, by going to 960thepatriot.com and listening to the beginning of this hour. You can get it elsewhere around the Internet, I suspect. Um, what's interesting, he quotes Solzhenitsyn. He talks about the fight of our lives. Um, he invokes a message, though not by name, that C.S. Lewis delivered in the 1940s about how to live in the age of the atomic bomb, something I've been speaking about a lot in this hour and the previous hour about. And um, he uses the phrase, the fight of our lives, a lot, and I want to talk about that in just a moment. But it's interesting, is it not, that after a period of about 25 or 30 years, these names are all coming back in profusion. It's been about that long since Solzhenitsyn has been quoted as much as I see him being quoted these days. It's been about that long since C.S. Lewis has been quoted as much as I have been seeing him quoted a bunch and a lot these days. Same, too, for George Orwell. And it tells you a couple of things. One, it tells you how right they were, how smart they were, and how serious it is when someone recommends, how serious a recommendation it is when someone suggests you read them or you go back and reread them. There's a reason these recently departed people, they lived and died in our lifetimes, there's a reason they still have purchase because they said something important and lasting and something to be paid attention to. That's the first point. The second point, why these guys and a few others. We never actually fully absorbed their lessons, for if we had, we wouldn't be where we are today, and we wouldn't be needing to revive, revivify their scholarship and their works. We never fully absorbed the lesson. A lot of people would dismiss it. You go back and look at how Alexander, excuse me, how Alexander Solzhenitsyn was treated when he first came to America. The Ford White House didn't want him to visit. When he gave the graduating speech at uh, the commencement speech at Harvard in, um, I think it was uh, 1978, um, all the editorials around the country that paid attention to it from the New York Times and the Washington Post on down criticized him for it. It's an interesting class, that class of 1978, whatever that class was where Solzhenitsyn gave the commencement speech. I'm pretty sure it was 78. It was a class of uh, two people you may have heard of. One of them was Hugh Hewitt. He was in that class. He heard that speech live. And one of them was uh, my teacher, uh, Charles Kessler, who uh, is now the uh, still a professor at Claremont, but also the editor-in-chief of the Claremont Review of Books. They got that message. They understood what Solzhenitsyn was trying to teach to the West. And it was about courage. It was about having courage and not letting 
the dampers and the cynics take you down because the West was the only future for civilization, which gets us to the fight of our lives. I want you to think, and if you want to go back to my monologue in the first hour or go back to some of the things Constantine Kissin was talking about in, in, in speaking about the fight of our lives, which he was using to describe a lot of different things. Why is it so poignant at this very moment? Why is it so pregnant with meaning at this very moment? Because it's being challenged by a radical ideology attached, attached to a physical evil. Attached to a physical evil. As Bill Bennett and I put it in the fight of our lives, we've made a strong case of our discontent with the current culture and leadership in the war against radical Islam. To us, the enemies aligned against us are widespread and their support is deep, much deeper than many give credit for, much deeper than many are willing to admit to, much deeper than many are willing to see. I hope you see it on the college campuses today. I hope you can see how deep it is now and how wide. As we wrote then, ours is an enemy. This was then. This was, I don't know, when did we write this? 2009. So this was, uh, you know, about 12 years ago or something. Ours is an enemy that straps bombs to children, that shoots nuns and burns churches in Africa, that blows up subways in Great Britain, that bombs trains in Spain, that kills documentarians in Amsterdam, that will put a price on the head of a cartoonist in Denmark, that goes on hotel and synagogue shooting rampages in India, that engages in and justifies honor, honor killings from Amman, Jordan, to Irving, Texas, and so much more we could fill an entire book with. Ours is an enemy whose institutes and universities teach that Jews and Christians are pigs and monkeys and that women and men must be stoned to death for adultery. Ours is an enemy that knows few borders and has supporters in sleeper cells the world over, including in America. Ours is an enemy that uses civilians as weapons whether they are civilians in airplanes that they convert into missiles or whether they are human beings that are slaughtered in medieval manner and used as a recruitment film, as a recruitment film. Ours is an enemy that can be trained here in the United States, give lectures here on Islam and then strap on his army uniform and kill fellow Americans at a health center inside an army fort in Killeen, Texas, as was done at Fort Hood. But there is a bigger danger, or at least a secondary danger, bigger is the wrong word, a secondary danger we face and should be concerned about. And that danger isn't really all the fault of the government. It's the high culture that has played games with right and wrong, that has a media that refuses to report full facts and wants to portray a certain side because it's au courant and because they themselves are afraid of pushback. All of it is about fear. All of it. Fear and ideology. I'll say something about that when we come back. It's become fashionable over the past few weeks to criticize rightfully criticize universities and colleges in this country 
for these menaces they've been producing. But this runs, as I said, widely, but also deeply, far more deeply. It runs to the secondary and elementary levels, too. How many people, just ask yourself, do you think have heard in K-12 through education the story of Columbus, as Constantine Kissin put it? Used to be the story everyone knew. Now no one knows it. But the United States story is now at the elementary, secondary, as well as the university level, denigrated via tendentious, revisionist, and too often just awful textbooks, professors, and teachers. All of this making one wonder why we would expect youth educated in such an environment to defend moral right and be offended by moral wrong, or to defend a country they don't like or don't know. Um, When they are taught that intersectionality, or what used to be called multiculturalism, is the most important ethic, it becomes ever more difficult to blame them for failing to see the causes of evil and the problems we face, often generated by a radical theology known as radical Islam. We have so very denigrated our own cause, turned patriotism into a down-market commodity, that we have little ability to cease from steering our youth toward others. And I'll pause it there for another notation about Constantine Kissin speaking of his grandparents, or speaking of everyone's grandparents. How were they alive today? They would be awestruck by the technical, technological advances that have, that have come since they've passed. They would be awestruck by them. They would not perhaps even comprehend them. Think about the distance of time from the Wright brothers to putting a man on the moon. It's a lifetime. That's it, one lifetime. And, um, and he's right about the technological advances. He's absolutely, obviously right. Everyone knows this. But you know what? I think there's another question that needs to be asked about what our grandparents would see were they alive today and here. They'd be awestruck and they'd marvel the technological progress. But I think they'd also be awestruck and marvel at the moral regress. And that's something to think about, too. Something to think about, too. With all this getting, so to speak, are we getting understanding? We are having more convenience all the time. Everything is becoming more convenient, technologically a little bit easier. Are things getting better? In fact, that's the question to think about. Are we seeing more progress in the right things or regress in the wrong ones? Thank you for being with us today, folks. I'm Seth Liebson. Until Monday, God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.